Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we are joined by experienced securities attorney, Mauricio Raould. Mauricio is the founder and CEO of the Premier Law Group, a premier boutique securities law firm. As a nationally recognized expert on private placements, Mauricio works with elite entrepreneurs who seek to increase and protect their wealth through syndications. Mauricio, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Thanks for having me, Andrew. Uh, Really uh, looking forward to it. Awesome. Let's jump right in. Can you tell the audience of passive investors a little bit about your background in mobile home parks, as I know they have a special place in your heart? Yeah, so my you know my original bet well my background really is is obviously I'm an attorney so uh, went to law school did the whole legal thing for a while and started my own practice about 15 16 years ago but about three or four years ago I took a little bit of a detour and I went to join two of my good friends who have a mobile home park fund and really an all inclusive business to be honest with you they have a management company they have a construction company they have an investment fund uh, they have pretty much the whole package and they invited me to come over and be a managing partner with them because uh, you know my buddy Andrew had been doing it for a long time and he was just looking to scale and he'd been kind of grinding away by himself and so he brought me and, and, and Mike on board to kind of you know build that business and I was I was there for about a year and then I realized man it, it really is it's gonna be a lot of work it's gonna be a huge reward but uh, you know I got little ones at the home it's gonna be burning the midnight oil on both sides. Oh, sure. It's a lot of work. So, uh, but it was a lot of fun and it's such a great asset class, you know, in and of itself. I'm a, big, I'm a big fan of it, a big proponent of it, and certainly have a lot of clients who are in that space just because, you know, affordable housing is such a huge, huge issue, especially these days. And uh, I just don't see how it's, you know, going to get any better, meaning, uh, you know, better for, for, for the people. It's a great investment opportunity for us because we we get to not only get a good return for our money, but we also get to help these communities and spruce them up a little bit and make their living conditions way better than they, because you know how a lot of these parks look like when you acquire them, right? <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Thank you for that little tidbit there. Let's go ahead and jump into some questions here. Yeah. What are the major risks for passive investors investing into funds and syndication type of deals? And you know, what would you say are the top three things that passive investors should look out for? Yeah, look, I think that the biggest risk, which I think goes hand in hand with the number one thing you need to look out for is as a passive investor, you have no control, right? So you have to do all of your due diligence on the front end to make sure that you're comfortable with the sponsor and the investment. And well, depending on whether it's a fund or not, sometimes you don't even see the investment, but you want to be sure that you're comfortable with that because that's your biggest risk. You have zero control, which is kind of one of the nice things too. It's a hands-off deal. You're investing money and then you're letting somebody else go generate the return for you. And because of that, I think the number one thing that passive investors really need to look at when making investments is the team, is the sponsor. Because anybody can put together a pretty you know, brochure or a pitch deck and, and a spreadsheet and how everything's going to work out great. But the real question is, and the real risk is, can that sponsor execute on that business plan? Because if they can, everything's going to be great. If they can't, it's going to be problematic. So for me, that's the number one thing that a passive investor should be looking at doing their due diligence on the particular sponsor, make sure that they've got a good team in place, make sure they've got the experience and make sure that they can you know, take care of your money because they're going to be stewards of your money since you're going to have very little control. 
Yeah, I 100% agree with that. That was well put. Yeah, the, the, the other things that pop up now more from a from a legal standpoint, and and this has come up several times in the past. Um, I don't typically do this anymore, but in the past, you know, when sometimes clients would call me and ask me to review documentation from you know investments that they were making, right? And inevitably, I would see just some red flags that popped up, and 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 interestingly enough. You know, the two that I remember specifically that were really big red flags ended up becoming issues, you know, two years down the road. So the, the first thing that passive investors need to realize is that they're supposed to be getting certain documents from the sponsor, right? A lot of legal mm-hmm. stuff, you know, primarily there should be a disclosure document, which is really important for you as a passive investor, because it's the document that basically outlines all the material facts and all the, the risks associated with the investment. So you want to be able to go in into the investment with eyes wide open understand that there's obviously risk, there's obviously reward, and you just have to make sure you can make an intelligent decision as to whether this is a good investment for you. And that all that information is in documentation. Many times that documentation is not provided to the passive investor, even though it's required by law. And what that tells me, first of all, it's a, it's a violation of securities laws from the, from the sponsor perspective, but that to me means they're cutting corners, right? That they decided not to hire a lawyer or really not, not take it seriously. And so the question for me has always been, well, if they're cutting corners here and trying to save a few bucks by not hiring, hiring an attorney and doing a, well, you know, a well-developed document, where else are they cutting corners, right? Are they, are they cutting corners on, on, on the rehabs? Are they cutting corners on the whatever they're doing? And inevitably, when I've seen excuses as to why there's no disclosure document, which we call the, the PPM, you may have heard that, the private placement memorandum, inevitably, when I don't see that, when it should be there, issues pop up in the future. And then even if you do have the docs, the third thing I think you really need to pay attention to, and it may be worth spending you know, 500 bucks or a thousand bucks to have an attorney review them for you. But you want to make sure that the documents actually reflect the story of what they've been telling you, right? So the sponsor is going to tell you, this is what the deal is going to look like. These are the, you know, these are the return. You've got a, maybe a pref or these are the splits or whatever, whatever they've been kind of pitching you on the business, on the pretty business plan and the pitch deck. You want to make sure that the documentation actually reflects those representations. Cause at the end of the day, if there's any dispute or, Hey, you told me this, you told me that it's going to be the documentation that's going to, to, to govern. So you want to make sure you're reviewing that docs and make sure that all the points that you thought were there and, and, and the reasons you're making that investment, make sure that those are in the documentations that provided to you. And Mauricio, would you say that's a must do uh, to have an attorney review those documents or could a passive investor, if they knew what to look for, review those themselves? No, look, I, to be honest with you, I would say probably less than 5%, if, if even that much of the people actually will hire an attorney to review it. They, they, don't, they don't want to spend the 500 or 1,000 bucks. So most of the time, you know, passive investors don't hire an attorney. You know, if I was doing, I'm obviously an attorney, so when I do it, I don't need to hire someone. But if, if I was getting involved in something that, I, you know, that, that I'm not an expert in and just want to make sure that, that everything's protected, it may, it may be a good idea. But, but you can always ask questions too. So if you're not sure, if like, hey, look, so-and-so told me that, you know, I'm supposed to be getting a, you know, a preferred return and then a, a, you know, whatever. And I'm looking at the docs and I can't quite see where that is. And there's nothing wrong with asking the sponsor, Hey, you, you mentioned this and this, where do I see that in the docs? Or maybe there's something in the docs that you don't quite understand and say, hey, do you mind explaining to me, you know, what this paragraph means? Cause it, it sounds like it means this, or I have no idea what it means. You know, please explain it to me. And that's something that's common and something that's actually required is that, the sponsor should be making themselves available to answer any types of questions you have once you've reviewed the extensive legal documents that they should be providing you with. Definitely. And in the legal documents that they provide you with, 
you know, what are like the, the top items that passive investors should look at? I, I assume that the distribution section and who gets paid first is going to be, you know, in the top five, but what would you say are the must look at sections of those documents? Voting would be one to the extent that you you've been told that you have some kind of a say. And well, typically these deals you have zero voting rights. So just you know that's kind of the idea. You're a passive investor, but to the extent you know what can you in what scenarios can you remove a manager just in case they're not doing what they're told you were supposed to do? Uh, distributions are also a big one, and then just the exit strategy, right? Just making sure that you know you, you've got an understanding of what the exit strategy is. Just make sure that that mirrors, especially in a fund, for example. So in a fund. There's no specific property, so there's no specific game plan on a particular part. But uh, the fund may say, you know, hey, it's a five-year fund or a ten-year fund. But but you may be able to, to to get out of the fund after you've been in there for two or years or three years or whatever. You just want to make sure that's in there, right? There, mm-hmm. You said I could get out in two years. Where where is it? There should be a section there called withdrawals, and and, and make sure that when you're reviewing it, it makes sense. Some people put limitations on those withdrawals. You know, they may just limit you because, you know, the sponsor is also concerned that if suddenly everybody wants to withdraw their money after two years, that creates a problem. So there may be some limitations as, okay, if there's too many withdrawals, we're going to limit you to 20% or 25% withdrawal. So those are kind of the terms I think I would be paying specific attention to. And then, of course, the distributions, right? I mean, if there's, uh, you know, if there's a preferred return in there, make sure you're reading the definition of what a preferred return really means. Does it does it roll over if you don't get it? Does it compound? I'm actually going to do a video shortly on preferred returns because there's actually three pretty common different ways of, of calculating a preferred return. So just because you say preferred, what's in your head may be different from what some, somebody else's head is. And depending on how you calculate it, you'll we'll, we'll, come out with different answers. So just paying attention. Uh, maybe the one thing I would just really stress a little bit is read those definitions, you know, especially my dogs. I spend a lot of time on the definitions so that I don't have to spend that much time in the, in the main body. So I'll just throw out the word, Hey, you're going to get a preferred return. But if you look at the definition of a preferred return, that's where all the, the juice is. So just don't skip over the, the, the glossary of terms and the definitions, because <laughs> that's usually where the details are. That's really good advice. Yeah. So what's the ideal way for a passive investor to invest? You know, is it okay to just invest through your personal name should you have an entity like an LLC set up or a trust? You know, I've, I've done it through Delaware LLCs, but would love your, your input on that. Yeah, so that, that, that starts to become sort of the asset protection questions. Like how, do you, how should you be holding your passive investments just like how should you be owning all your other assets, right? Typically, and the other question you have to ask of is, is how important is privacy for you? Like one of the biggest, not the biggest, but a lot of times passive investors are, are complain or they don't like the fact that their name and address is all on the exhibit that lists all the other members of the LLC. And they, they you know, like, I don't want anybody to know where my home address is, which I totally get, but that's something that you should be thinking about prior to making the investment. So from a privacy standpoint, obviously creating an entity hides your personal, you know, obviously, hopefully you don't have your personal residence on there at all. If nothing, you'll have a mailing address. But from a privacy standpoint, it's nice to just have you know, ABC LLC as the owner and the percentage and an address and, and your name's nowhere to be found. So you've got a little bit of a privacy thing going on there. But from an asset protection standpoint, you really want to be in a state that has really strong asset protections. You want to have a holding company, which is I think what you're talking about, Andrew. You want to have a holding company, which is sort of your first line of defense. That's what you own. You want to own an entity, which I call a holding company, that's in a really strong asset protection state. Now, the three best states, in my opinion, especially if you're a single member LLC or if you're with a spouse, it's basically the same thing as a single member. So if it's just you or it's just you and a spouse, meaning no business partners, then I like to set them up in one of those three states. One of them is the one you mentioned, Delaware. 
Nevada and Wyoming. Those are the three states that have the strongest asset protection rules for single member and husband and wives because of something called the charging order, which I'm happy to go into it, but it's a little bit outside the scope. But the charging order in those three states are the exclusive remedy for somebody trying to come after your assets. Uh, And those do extend to single member LLCs where other states may be really good states like Texas, for example, is a really solid asset protection state, but we're not quite sure how Texas is going to respond to a single member issue and whether they're going to extend those same, same benefits. So I recommend all my clients, there's two things I recommend all my clients having. One is a living trust. So just, you know, just avoid probate, again, privacy, speed and, and cost. You, everybody should have a living trust and that living trust then owns your holding company. And that holding company then invests in safe assets and, and safe assets mean other LLCs, cash, precious metals, you know, your wine collection, anything that, that you're, I'm not worried is going to jump out and sue you. I'm not worried that your cash is going to come out and sue you. I'm not worried that your gold is going to sue you. Your painting is going to jump out and sue you. I am worried that your car can get into an accident and you can get sued. I'm worried about the house. I'm worried about the businesses. So those things do not go into your holding company. Those go into an LLC first. And then your holding company, this LLC that you're talking about, Andrew, would be the owner. So that was a really long and complicated way to saying, mm-hmm. yes, you should have a, in my opinion, you should have an LLC in one of those three states and, and invest in those passive investments through that LLC, through your holding company. That's that is a golden nugget right there. Just that one answer to that question was worth this whole interview. So I, I thought that was really valuable. To piggyback on that, I know in one of our deals, we had an investor that was investing through the state of New York. And when we went to file with the state for the, the SEC filing fees, they were like 5% of the investment amount. So <laughs> we ended up having to replace that investor. So, you know, you might want to speak to that. You know, I I'm not sure what they are for Delaware, Wyoming, and uh, Nevada, but for New York, you know, this investor was going to invest $50,000 and the filing fee was going to be like $2,500. So it it just didn't make sense right off the bat. So are there any other states that jump out at you that are, you know, high SEC filing fee states? Yeah. So, so those are two separate things. So the, 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 what we were just talking about in terms of having a holding company or LLCs, uh, each state has a filing fee to, to create the LLC, uh, and those are relatively, I think the most expensive ones are sort of Texas, all the states that don't have any state income tax or expenses. So Texas, mm-hmm. I believe, is $300. You know, Tennessee is $300. But most of them are $100 or $125. What we're now talking about is what we call the blue sky SEC filings, which means every time a sponsor sells a syndication or piece of syndication to an investor, they have to file a form in the state where the investor lives along with their filing fee. And the filing fees also vary from state to state. Some states like Florida don't have a filing fee. And then other states like New York are obscenely expensive. I would say on average, there are, most states are in that $150, $250 range. But as you mentioned, New York, the state of New York is about, I think around $2,000. I don't know what the last time I looked at it, but it's about $2,000. So yeah, if you're investing $25,000 and you're from New York or you're investing $50,000, that, that, that's a huge amount. And so I always caution clients, if you're going to have just one investor in New York, just think about it if it makes sense. I just had a call today with somebody who's actually from New York. And so most of their investors are going to be from New York. So it is what it is. But you have to add that as, as a, but that's all paid by the sponsor, by the way. But the sponsor then just has to account for that and add it to their budget, which I guess ultimately comes from the project. So it does affect the investors. But yeah, New York's a tough one. They're, they're really expensive. And, you know. you know, and as a sponsor, you may pick an investor from a different state to avoid some of those expenses. 
you know, if, if it's like a 25 or $50,000 investment. Right. So right. that's just uh, another reason I think, you know, I always recommend, I, you know, trying to make that minimum investment. And, and, and if you're a passive investor and you, you wonder why is it that the investment minimum investments are, are maybe higher than you would like, you know, a lot of them are a hundred thousand or 50,000. That's one of the reasons is because there are costs associated with. So the, the, the smaller amount of investments, just sometimes it doesn't make sense if you're from New York, but also economies of scale and, and other reasons sure. why you want to have minimum investments. Sure. So does a passive investor need a different, you know, holding company or LLC for every syndication they invest in? Or can they put all of their passive investments in one holding company? I've practiced, you know, putting a max of like five syndications per entity and then, you know, kind of adding different ones. But what are your, what are your tips yeah, on I mean, that? For the holding companies that there, you can, you can put a lot more in there because you're not doing anything. So the idea of a holding company is it, it, it conducts no business. So in the case of the syndication LLCs, you're literally just holding membership interest in the syndication. You're doing no business. So there's no reason why that holding company should, should get sued. It's not doing Have business. Any risk, it's not going right? to get sued. Yeah. Can't. There's an outside risk, a really small one. And in a syndication, it's almost non-existent of somebody trying to pierce what we call pierce the corporate veil, where the syndication LLC gets sued and then there's not enough money in there. So they want to get to the owner. So they try and pierce that corporate veil. That's a little bit more prevalent when it's just a single member or there's one or two people because, you know, then, you know, there's an argument to be made that, you know, maybe they weren't treating it as separate. But, but with a syndication, you have so many different investors. It's pretty clear that they're separate entities and, the, the, you know, they're, they're going to be doing everything separate from the members. So I'm, I'm less concerned about that. I think what you're talking about, where, where I bring that topic up, is when you're owning dangerous assets in a particular LLC. So, for example, if you have one LLC that owns a property, mm-hmm. for example... Then the question is, well, how many properties can I put into that one LLC? Because you have to recognize that if something happens to one of those properties, the other properties are exposed. Anything that the LLC owns is fair game. So the other properties it owns, cash, you know, any other assets it owns is fair game. So that's where I'm like, well, you don't want to get, you know, you don't want to have too many properties in one LLC, even though it's more economical, it's easier, all that great stuff. But if something happens, if there's a slip and fall on one single family home and you've got five of them in there, then the other, the equity and the other four are exposed. So in that scenario, I, I kind of, it's not really a number of properties that I limit. It's really how much equity do you feel comfortable is exposed. So for, for one person, it might be, you know, a million dollars might be a lot of money for one person and may mean nothing to somebody else. So I look at more, and, and for example, in the last, interestingly, in the last great recession, I remember doing deals where people had all these homes underwater. So there's no equity in 15 homes. I had a client who had 60 single family residents. So we stuck like 18 of them in one LLC because they're all underwater. There's no equity. Mm-hmm. So who cares? <laughs> right? There's nothing to go after. Yeah. But, uh, but if, you have a one, if you have one single family that has a million dollars in equity, then you probably don't want to put more, more properties into that LLC because you've already got a million dollars of exposure. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, that's a great tip. So in regards to the entities, when you're looking at operators, you know, specifically for mobile home parks, you know, the, the model that, that we've gone by is that, you know, you want to have one single purpose entity to own the real estate, another entity that owns the park owned homes, and then a completely other, you know, S corp that would manage the property. Do you agree with that structure of the different entities? A hundred percent. And that's how we used to do them. And that's, you know, typically how you would set it up. You would definitely, and I think primarily, you know, especially in the mobile home park industry where, you know, unless it's changed, the lenders typically aren't I don't know if they even do it. They're not too thrilled about lending money on park-owned homes. And so we used to mm-hmm. segregate them so that they, they would be loaning on the, on the land itself. But yeah, you would have a property LLC that owns the land. You'd have another LLC that would have the ownership of the, of the park-owned homes. 
And then obviously you need a management company, assuming you're doing that in-house, that would be the, the prop, sort of the equivalent of the property manager that's uh, you know, overseeing most likely a local property manager that's on, on property. Wonderful. Wonderful. For investors that are investing through their IRA, is there any additional risks or questions they should be asking operators? Yeah, I think the one thing that's been coming up quite a bit on IRA, so IRA is a great, you know, a great investment vehicle. It does have to be self-directed. So if you have a traditional IRA, if you have a four, old 401k or a traditional IRA, you will have to roll that over into what we call a self-directed IRA so that you can then instruct the custodian to invest in whatever you want them to invest in, as long as there's there's some rules relating to it. There's no, you know, you can't have a relate, you know, you can't invest in your own deals. There's got to be so no related parties. There's some transactions that are prohibited. But in, let's go specific to the mobile home park. It's a great investment vehicle to put your money in as opposed to having it stuck in, you know, whatever other traditional mains. The one thing that's popping up that that you want to just be aware of and, and talk to your probably your, your CPA if you're a passive investor is if the investment, everybody thinks that the IRAs, it's tax deferred, right? Like whatever profits I'm going to get from the investment, they're just going to go back to my, my IRA and then I'm not going to have to worry about paying taxes until I start withdrawing. But there is something called uh, you know, UBID and UDFI, not to get too complicated, but, but anytime you have leverage in a deal. So if I put $100 into an investment with my IRA and I'm able to leverage that to, let's say, $400,000, then any profit I get on that leverage piece is taxable. So I only get the deferral on the, you know, on the original investment. So when there's leverage, there, there is some, some tax consequence, potential tax consequence for, you, for your IRA. There is a way around that that you should look into. Uh, you can get uh, what's called a sort of a solo 401k or an EQRP. You may have heard the term that as well. But those are ex- excluded from that UDFI, the unrelated Oh man, I forget the unrelated finance income something or other, and you know unrelated business income tax. Um, so if you do an IRA and there's leverage, then I would recommend checking out uh, the, that other. Instead of doing a self-directed IRA, go through that EQRP or, or sometimes it's called solo four hundred one k's. Awesome, and we are interviewing a CPA, so I'll make sure awesome. to add that yeah, to the, about that. Yep. the list of questions. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So going kind of to the you know, back to like the offering documents, yeah. you know, what if an investor wants out at any given time, you know, is, is that something that, you know, there's like a usual procedure for that you've seen, you know, would that be in the offering documents, like you mentioned earlier, something that they would need to look out for? Yeah, typically, if it's a project specific, meaning if there's a, if the syndicator is purchasing a particular park or multiple parks, then typically the investor's in for whatever the term is. It's a five, usually they're five to seven years, they might be less. There might be a refinance option where you'll be able to get your money back, but but typically you're in until the project gets sold or whatever the whatever the the, the plan is. With a fund, you 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 often do see opportunities to get out. So so the, on the first time, it's a, it's a non liquid. It's not the stock market, right? If you suddenly invest in one of these deals and it's a five year deal and you need your money after two years, there's a mechanism where you but you got to go find your own buyer. There's no stock market. There's no you don't put it on exchange. A lot of times the sponsors will you know may, may help you out there, but they're certainly not obligated. So I would have to as a, a passive investor go into the marketplace, find a buyer. Uh, and then usually there's a right of first refusal. So you, then you go back and say, "Hey, Andrew, I found somebody who wants to buy my share, my fifty thousand dollars shares for forty five grand. Is that okay? You're not okay, but like, hey, unless you want to match it, I'm going to go ahead and sell it, and then you sell it to somebody. So that's fine. In a fund, the funds tend to be longer, and, and they don't really have an end date a lot of times. So it's like, ah, eh, it's a five year, ten year, maybe fifteen year fund. So there's typically mechanisms inside funds that allow you to come in and out of the fund. Uh, and those are what we call withdrawal provisions. And each one is different, but yeah, you'd want to look at 
specifically, the operating agreement is really what dictates, but it should be in the business plan and even in the PPM, you'll see reference to it. But the actual procedure would be in the operating agreement. And, you know, a typical one would be there's a minimum amount of time that you're in. So maybe it's two years. And then after two years, there's a window in there that you, you're allowed to provide notice to the sponsor saying, hey, you know what, it's been great, but I need the money, I need to withdraw. And then the sponsor then has X amount of days to, to withdraw you and get you your money back and you know, how you calculate what, what it's worth. And then, you know, it's probably just once a year, there's a window, or maybe it's once every two years now, there's a window that you usually get to provide notice to, to get out. To get out. Awesome. Yeah, that's a, that's a good tip. So real quick, next question. Could you discuss the difference between a 506B and a 506C offering, you know, from the perspective of a, of a passive investor? And what are the major things that they need to know when it comes to those two different types of offerings? And then maybe piggyback that with the difference between a fund and a, you know, a property specific syndication. Yeah. So generally the rule is that if, when, when a sponsor is doing a syndication, they need to have either register that syndication with the SEC or find an exemption mm-hmm. or it's illegal, as I like to say. So they never read, you'll never, almost never see a registration. So you're always looking for an exemption. And the two most popular ones you mentioned, 506B as in boy and 506C as in Charlie. From an investor standpoint, the main difference for really for the investor is in a 506C, only accredited investors are eligible to invest. So an accredited investor is anyone who has a million dollars in net worth, excluding their primary residence, or have earned has earned $200,000 the last two years with a reasonable expectation of earning that or more this year. And if you're combining with your spouse, that goes up to $300,000. So in a 506C, you're only, if you're not accredited, you're not going to be eligible and if you are accredited, just be aware that the sponsor has a requirement to verify that accreditation status. They've got to take what's called reasonable steps to verify. That typically comes in the form of a CPA verification letter. So you as the investor would go to your CPA. Usually the sponsor gives you a, a template, but they basically go to the CPA and have them sign a letter that says, hey, yeah, I do the taxes for this investor and I can tell you they're accredited and that's good enough. If they don't do that, either because they don't have a CPA or the CPA doesn't want to sign the letter, then they're probably going to be producing tax returns or you know brokerage account or whatever it is to show and to verify that they're accredited. On a 506B, uh, even if they're accredited, they're, going to just, they're just going to check the box. They're just going to represent they're accredited and that's good enough. But from the investor standpoint, that, that's pretty much it. In a 506B, the main difference between the B and the C is really advertising. So with a 506C, you can be advertised, meaning you might be able to, whenever you're scrolling through social media or websites or Googling, and you come across a fund that's likely a 506C because they're allowed to advertise to you. With a 506B, they can't advertise to you. You have to have a pre-existing relationship with the sponsor. So I don't know which one you do mostly, but if, if your sponsor is doing a 506B, that means that you have a, a substantial, what we call a substantive relationship with the sponsor. It's not somebody that you just you know, found on the internet or, or Google mm-hmm. around mobile home parks and, and said, oh, look, this I, I'm looking to invest somewhere and, and, and I've never met Andrew in my life. And, uh, and I just pick up the phone and invest. I wouldn't, you wouldn't be eligible for that. But from like a, you know, for a passive investor, you know, when the operator is asking you, you know, hey, I need to get proof of your accreditation, you know, that's something not abnormal. That is a normal process that they will have to go through based off of the SEC rules, correct? That's correct. And it's a, well, it's a relatively new rule too. I mean, it's, it's been a few years now. It's, it, it passed in 2013. So prior to 2013, this didn't even exist. So a lot of accredited investors aren't used to 
providing this, if they haven't invested in a while or have never invested in the 506C, sometimes like, wait a minute, why, why are you asking? Why are you intruding in my financials? <laughs> and that's why the, the CPA verification letter is nice because you know, nobody gets to see your, your financials. Your, your CPA simply gives you a letter. And, and honestly, most of the time, the, the sponsor won't even ask you for the specific docs. They'll hire a third party to do the due diligence for them. So you'll never actually show the sponsor your tax returns or your, or your accounts. You'll show those to a third party. Typically, it's a mm-hmm. lawyer or something. But, and they'll, they'll do the due diligence for, on behalf of the sponsor. And then just let the sponsor know they're good. They won't actually see your financials, per se. Awesome. Awesome. Well, tying things up. You know, what would be your, your main advice for passive investors, you know, looking to invest passively in a mobile home park deal? I mean, I love the, I, you know, not that I'm here to give any investment advice, but as, as we've talked, I've been in the industry before. So I'm, I'm a big fan of the asset class in general, especially in these environments, you know, affordable housing. I think the future of affordable housing, whether it's mobile home parks, whether it's, you know, any other type of affordable is going to be a big, a big factor. So I, I'm a big, I'm not saying player, but I'm a, I'm a big investor in that space. You know, as long as you do your due diligence, I mean, you know, it could be a great asset class and it's a great deal, but if you have a lousy sponsor, then that's not going to work. And, and you know, the, the other way, I'd much rather have a really great sponsor on a lousy deal than have a lousy deal, have a great exactly. deal with a lousy sponsor. So that yeah. just goes back to number one, which is just do, make sure you're doing your due diligence on the, on the team as well as the specific deal. So there's been a lot of golden nuggets in this interview, but I would say that that is a, a really good one. You know, focus on the sponsor and, and their track record you know, over top of, like you said, I'd rather have a good sponsor and a lousy deal than, you know, a great deal and a lousy sponsor. I think that's yep. really good advice. So, wow. Everything that you just, just mentioned was very valuable. Thank you so much for, for sharing all of that. If any of our listeners want to get a hold of you, what is the best way for them to reach you, Mauricio? They can just shoot me an email at team, T-E-A-M, at premierlawgroup.net premierlog.net, or they can go on my website. You'll have some videos there and just feel free to, to reach out. I'm happy to help anybody out. Awesome. And that's premierlawgroup.net. At correct. I will put that in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us, Mauricio. This was super valuable. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, that's it for today, folks. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Hey, are you getting value out of this show? If so, would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over 100 five-star reviews by the end of 2021, and it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. Thanks ahead of time for making my day with your five-star review of the show.